Today's scripture reading comes from Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Randy, for reading God's word to us. And welcome again to all of you who've gathered here to worship our God together. Way back in the summer of 1991, I watched a movie called Boys in the Hood. Some of you might be old enough to remember that summer <laughs> and maybe even remember that movie too. Uh, the movie's about a young, uh, it's about young men and women who are growing up in a community that's flooded with violence. It's flooded with addiction and, and hopelessness. And early on in that movie, there, there's a, a 10-year-old boy by the name of Trey. He's riding in his dad's car when an old song comes on the radio and his father says, wait, wait, we got to listen to this. I want you to listen to this song. And he turns up the volume, and the song goes like, like this. It goes, oh, <laughs> it goes, ooh, child, things are going to get easier. Do you know this song? I'm not going to try to really sing it. <laughs> ooh, child, things will get brighter. And it repeats, ooh, child, things are going to get easier. Ooh, child, things will get brighter. It's a sentimental scene. And on the one hand, it's just a nostalgic dad sharing a song with his little boy. But more than that, it's, it's a poignant moment of fragile hope. See, because this dad wants to believe that things will get better for them, for his family, for his people, for his community. And Trey, he's looking out the window, that little 10-year-old boy, he's looking out the window, and, and it looks like he's trying to reconcile the, the promise of this song with what he actually sees outside in his neighborhood. And as they pull onto their block, the cops are there, and his 10-year-old his little friend, Doughboy, is, is in handcuffs, and he's having a 
He's getting arrested. It's the first of many encounters with the police that that boy will have over the course of his life. And Doughboy's mother, she, she looks, she's standing there. She looks ashamed. She looks angry. And as the scene ends, the image on the screen is one of brokenness and weariness. But the song keeps playing. In the background, it's still there. Ooh, child, things are going to get easier. Things will get brighter. And we're left as viewers to, to, to ask ourselves, is that really true? Are things going to get better for that community, for this family? Or is that just something people tell themselves in order to cope? Will things get better Will things get easier? This is a relevant question for us. Whatever your experiences are, whatever you've seen, whatever you've experienced or whatever is going through your life right now, this is a question for us to ask. It's a relevant question for Advent too because Advent is a season for looking, longing for a future reality and waiting for that future reality. So we ask ourselves, Is that future reality going to be better and brighter? And if so, how much better? How much brighter? This world is a dark place in so many ways. I don't need to convince you of the darkness. You've seen it. You've experienced it. We could ask Sasha and his family to communicate to us the horrors that they have experienced over the past months in Ukraine but we don't even have to go that far. Will it ever get brighter? Isaiah 11 says, yes, 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 it will get better. It will get brighter. And, that, and, and, and it tells us that our only hope for a better, brighter future is completely bound up in a person, a person. And we're going to see who he is and we're going to see what he's going to do and what he has done But let's set the scene for this chapter, first of all. And to set the scene, we really need to go back to to chapter 10 of Isaiah. When these words were written to God's people, Israel, they were in a very bad place. The kingdom was already split by conflict. We can look at that split kingdom on this map. The, the, the nation of the kingdom of Israel, still called Israel to the north, the kingdom of Judah to the south, and, and to, the, to the northeast, you'll see the Assyrian Empire there. The mighty Assyrian Empire that was spreading, rolling throughout that region, occupying more and more nations. They were flexing their muscles. They were already imposing a threat on the nation of Israel. And, And all of this, by the way, was God's judgment on Israel because of their sins. Their many sins, like their unjust laws. Their unfair treatment of the poor. God cares about that. God cares deeply about that. And he was judging Israel in part because of their unjust laws and their unfair treatment of the poor. God had warned them about that, but they had ignored him. Even as things got worse for them, they continued to ignore their God. They tried to improve their situation by making alliances with other nations to get stronger or by paying off other nations for protection. They worshiped the gods of their enemies just to appease those enemies. The fact is that all of these actions, all of them stemmed from unbelief 
from faithlessness in God. And the consequences for all of this were devastating. And, and, and the fact is that worse days were still ahead. In chapter 10, verse 3 of Isaiah, God says, What will you do on the day of punishment? In the ruin that will come from afar, that is from Assyria. To whom will you flee for help, and where will you leave your wealth? You're going to lose your wealth. Where's it going to go? The wealth that you've accumulated through injustice and unrighteousness, you're not going to keep it. Where's it going to go? Uh, And one of the powerful ways that God would judge his people was through their enemy, the Assyrian Empire. Assyria would become a a kind of tool in God's hands, so to speak to discipline, to chasten his people. In fact, in in, in verse 5 of Isaiah 10, God calls Assyria the rod of my anger. He says, the staff in their hands is my fury. But interestingly, and this is fascinating to me at least, not only would God use Assyria as a tool for judgment against Israel, But then, later on down the road, he would judge Assyria too. Look at what Isaiah says says in, in verse 12 of chapter 10. He says, When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the kings of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, By the strength of my hand I have done it. And by my wisdom, and then down in verse 15, he says, Shall the axe boast over him who hews it? (laughs) Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it? Or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood? Therefore, the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, and under his glory a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. You see what the Lord is saying here. He's saying, I'm coming for you next, Assyria. I've worked through you. I've used your aggression and your evil to bring judgment on my people, but I'm coming for you next. That may sound strange to us. But it's a window into the mysterious sovereignty of God. It's a window into the mysterious ways that he works. Here's Assyria on the one hand. They're motivated by arrogance. They're not trying to serve God, right? They're motivated by arrogance. They're motivated by greed to invade Israel. God uses their aggression. He wields it to discipline his people for their sin, only to later wield his own power against Assyria for their sin. This is beyond our ability to fully understand. This is confusing, perhaps. In fact, perhaps all we can do is be awed and humbled by it and be instructed by it and take at least this takeaway here, that if you are a child of God, as God's people, we must be aware of the fact that when we stray from him, we disobey him, we dishonor him, we distrust him, We may very well expect that God will discipline us in many ways. And one of those ways is to use unbelieving people, the world at large, people who do not know him. God may use them to bring discipline, chastening into our lives. 
to move us to repent and to trust once again in our God. In any case, in chapter 10, that chapter ends with with this stark picture of what God is eventually going to do to the mighty Assyrian Empire. It says in verse 33 of Isaiah 10, Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. He's talking about chopping them down. The great in height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. The empire that's flexing its power and rolling violently through the region will be brought to a stop and will be cut down. Verse 34, he will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. You see, the prophet is inspired to to paint this picture of a, a forest that's been completely razed. Uh, All of its trees, big and small, completely felled. Maybe you've seen the aftermath of a forest fire like this. Trees gone. There's There's no sign of squirrel or deer there. You can imagine that if you were there, you probably wouldn't hear birds singing. No sign of life. It reminded me of the the war paintings of Paul Nash. I don't know if any of you are familiar with this artist, but he paints paintings like this next one here. He he painted pictures of the aftermath of war. This is a World War I battlefield that had been devastated by bombs and firepower. This is the kind of picture that Isaiah is painting for us, too. God told Assyria, this will be you. I will chop you down. I will burn you down. So as we end chapter 10, I want us to see that the scene is desolate. It's a picture of the devastating effects of sin. But as we start chapter 11, there's a sign of hope. And that's the chapter that we're really focusing on today. The sign of hope in chapter 11. It's as if that song is still playing. Child, things are going to get easier. Things are going to get brighter. We begin to to see that song played out as we read through chapter 11 of Isaiah. Verse 1 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from the roots shall bear fruit. Picture that expanse of burnt-out logs and stumps. This one single stump, though, we focus in on it. It looks dead. It looks dead, but there's life sprouting from it. There's, there's, there's life that's just beginning to be birthed. And in that single life, there is hope. Isaiah is telling us about a person here. We can look at the next image too. We, they, think about this as, as a person. He's growing a little bit more. Eventually, fruit will come. The person is a king. The person is Jesus. In the time that we have left, we're going to ask, who is he? Who is this King Jesus? What will he do? And what will his kingdom look like? Who is he? What will he do? And what will his kingdom look like? Who is he? Who is he? Who is the source of hope? What's his character? I mean, we know his name. It's Jesus. I gave that away already. But what do we know about him? Isaiah calls him a shoot from Jesse's stump. Now, the people of Israel would have known the name Jesse. Because Jesse was the father of King David. 
the greatest king that the people of Israel had ever had. The tree that was once Jesse now looks like a dead stump. But, but new life is sprouting out from it. There's a new king coming from Jesse. A new king would come from his line, but he'd be a different kind of king, different from David and all the other kings that came in that line before him. Here's how. For one thing, David had failed in many ways. The greatest king Israel ever had failed in many ways. He did not always trust God. He made bad personal alliances. He committed injustices against weak people. You want to know how? Look up the word, look up the names Uriah and Bathsheba. And you'll see how David was tempted at times to treat those who were weaker than him. But this new king, this new king would be different. Verse 2 says of chapter 11 that the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon this new king. Now, you may know this, but in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was very active. He was active. Uh, he would come upon, descend upon Israel's leaders at points to empower them to do God's work. We read of the Spirit coming upon Moses, the Holy Spirit coming upon Joshua and some of the judges and King Saul and King David himself were filled at points with the Spirit who would come and empower them. But, but that same Spirit would at times also depart from people when they strayed from God. And so famously, the Spirit departed from King Saul because King Saul had departed from God. King David himself, when he sinned horribly at a low point in his life, he cries out to God, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. But Isaiah says that when this better king arrives, the Spirit will rest upon him. Not just come upon him, but rest upon him. That word is packed with meaning. It means that the Holy Spirit would come upon him to stay, to make home there. Matthew 3.16 is a scene where Jesus was baptized. And it says there that when he was baptized, he immediately, he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened up to him. Imagine what that must have looked like. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Rest. It speaks of long-term plans. It speaks of permanence. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son. My son, with whom I am well pleased. You see, the Spirit of God is at home in the incarnate Son of God. The Spirit of God is perfectly at home in the incarnate Son of God. You see, the God of the Bible is one God. There's only one God in the Bible, true God. But he exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and here in Isaiah 11, it's as if Isaiah is alluding to all three persons. He says, he says, God the Father promises that God the Son will come as a man. And God the Spirit will rest in him. Now, now look at this, because I find this amazing. Look down at verse 10 of Isaiah 11. In verse 10, 
Jesus, this promised king, is not called the shoot of Jesse. What's he called? He's called the root of Jesse. He's the shoot of Jesse. He's also the root of Jesse. Isn't that interesting? In other words, he's the one from whom Jesse came. He's the shoot and the root. He is descended from Jesse, but he is also the source of Jesse and the source of all humanity. He is fully man and fully God. That's the king that Isaiah is talking about here. Verse 2 goes on to say, that he possesses the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Jesus is the wisest, smartest, most insightful man who ever lived. In fact, he's the smartest, wisest, most insightful person who ever lived. He doesn't struggle to determine what's good and better and best like we do. He always knows what to do, when and how. And, and he, know, he has the ability to do what he knows is best because he has divine power at his disposal. And this King Jesus, he knows you intimately. He knows me intimately. He knows what's best for you. He understands your most complicated, impenetrable problems and wrestlings. He knows them fully. And he has the wisdom to guide you through them. If you'll trust him. If you will trust this king and what he tells you, he will guide you through to navigate those perplexing troubles. In fact, his word is filled with wisdom for you if you'll receive it. What else does the king possess according to verse 2? It says there that he he has the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. Isn't that interesting? Does that, does that sound odd to you? Why would the Son of God fear the Father? Why would God the Son fear God the Father? Here's one way to think about it. What we fear most will control us. And if we fear the wrong thing, it will corrupt us. When we fear the wrong thing, it corrupts us. Israel's rulers feared their enemies, so what happened? When they feared their enemies more than they feared God, they compromised. They worshipped other gods to appease them. They made foolish alliances, tried to protect themselves, all because they feared others more than they feared God. This has been true throughout history. So fast forward into the New Testament period. Leaders in Jesus' day, they feared what? The Pharisees. They feared losing power. They feared losing respect. They feared losing control. This is true of the Pharisees. It was also true of Pilate, the Roman governor, who folded in the face of the fear of his constituents and made an unjust decision out of fear. They were corrupted by fear, and it left them unable to lead justly. I think it's safe to say that many of our elected officials don't fear God. I know that there must be exceptions, but I think it's true that many of our elected officials don't fear God. Perhaps they fear losing votes. Perhaps they fear losing power. Some of them might use God's name to garner favor with a particular voting block. But that only, that only reveals what they really fear. 
losing to their opponents, losing the trust of their constituents, losing influence. So, so it's that fear that drives them, and it corrupts their ability to lead with integrity and to lead with justice. But, but here's where we're going. For Jesus, there's only one person he fears. There's only one whom he aims to please at all costs. It's God the Father. And this is what it means when we hear that the, he is filled with the spirit of the fear of the Lord. And by the way, it's not just leaders who get corrupted when they fear the wrong things, right? And when they don't fear God, it, it goes for all of us. Why, why do people cheat sometimes? It's because they fear failure. Or they lie because they fear punishment. Or we pretend because we fear rejection. But it's all rooted in the fear of people and the fear of things. Whereas the, the fear of the Lord, that desire to honor him above all at any cost, that fear of the Lord, it leads us to operate with integrity, to operate with justice. And Jesus had that kind of fear of the Lord. In fact, verse 3 says that he delights in the fear of the Lord. In other words, it was his happy desire to honor his father above all else. So that is the king who's promised in Isaiah 11 as hope for a decimated, discouraged people. That's him. But the next thing we need to ask is what will this king do? What will he do? Verse 3 goes on to tell us, it says, he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. Even the best of leaders have major limitations. In fact, all of us do. All of us can, we can only perceive what's apparent to our senses. And for some of us, our senses are getting duller as we get older. The font on my sermon notes has gotten exponentially bigger and bigger over the past five years. I'm, I'm at size 16 right now. Can you believe it? And I'm still backing up to be able to make sense of it. But not the Messiah. The Messiah, he perceives the heart. He perceives the deepest motives of the heart. No matter how complicated those motives might be. Sometimes we don't even understand our own motives as tangled as they are. Oh, he sees them. He perceives them perfectly, clear as day. So when this king, he, when he settles a matter, he does it with perfect insight. He's never impulsive. He's never uninformed. He never jumps to conclusions or misinterprets your problems or mine. And that's, again, why you can trust him. That's why we can trust him. You can trust his word to speak into your life with complete authority. He is the only person who you can give complete blank slate authority to speak into your life. And you can say, if you say it, I will believe it. Even, even when what he says conflicts with your own intuition. Even when what he says conflicts with your own experiences, perhaps especially then, you can and must say, because of who you are, I will trust you. And I will trust your every word. 
Verse 4 says that with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Who is it that usually holds power and influence in most societies? Isn't it usually the wealthiest? And, and, and who is it that's, that's most likely to be treated unfairly by those in power? It's the person with little money, isn't it? The person with, with the fewest resources to defend themselves. The person with the least power. But, but this king, he insists on treating all of us with equity and justice. In fact, in the final estimation, it's the lowly who will find themselves lifted up by him. He says so. This king does in Matthew 5, 5. He said, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The weakest, the lowliest, will get everything. You see, Jesus will redirect the flow of power in the world toward the humble. This is what this Messiah King promises to be and do. And, and, and we have to ask the question as we read this, do, do I believe in him? Do you believe in him? Because these are big claims. When, when campaigning politicians make promises, we're skeptical, aren't we? When, when, when campaigning leaders or new leaders, when they trumpet their ideals, some of us, we get suspicious because they will often present themselves as virtuous and, and trustworthy, but are they really? We, we had a president who said that he's never asked for forgiveness. And Isaiah 11, Isaiah 11 comes along and says, and makes a bigger claim. It says, it promises us a king who has never had, truly had to seek forgiveness because he's sinless, and yet he gave up everything to get us the forgiveness that we need. Some of us have heard about this king so many times. Isaiah 11, the, these realities, they must, they must push us to ask, do I trust him? Do you trust him? And if not, if you're not trusting him, why? What is it about him that makes you think these claims are false? I'm not, I'm not trying to pressure anyone, but, but I am asking, why will you not believe if you haven't believed in him? What's keeping you from trusting this king? Because he came, just as he promised to come, he came. He hasn't finished all that he's going to do, but he will. We'll talk about that in a minute, but he did come, and he died, and he rose again for, for devastated, desolate Desperate, discouraged people. Because he died and rose again in our place, we can have complete forgiveness for all the ways that we've ignored God, for all the ways that we've refused to obey and honor him, for all the unwise alliances we've made in our lives so that we wouldn't have to trust him. This shoot from Jesse's stump allowed himself to be cursed and, and hung on a tree, a, a wooden cross for us. What's keeping you from trusting him and from trusting everything he says? He wants you. He wants you, and he will welcome you into his kingdom with open arms. 
let's end by thinking about what this kingdom will look like. What will his kingdom look like? In verse 6, Isaiah shifts to a whole new set of stunning images. He describes this future reality. It's, it's the opposite of a, of a burnt-down, chopped-down forest. No, this new set of images is filled with vibrant life. He describes a future reality. He's describing the renewed world that the Lord will create when he returns. It's what we often call the new heavens and the new earth. I love that term, the new heavens and the new earth. You know, that language comes directly from Isaiah, from Isaiah 66. But the imagery here in Isaiah 11 is about that. Look at it. Let's read verse 6 and 7. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child will lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. That's how Isaiah describes the world when Christ comes to finally eradicate every last vestige of sin, every effect of the curse. His kingdom has no room for any of that. When he returns to make all things new, and and there's, perhaps you notice, this is poetic language. Isn't it? There's, this is imagery. So the point isn't necessarily for us to speculate about whether in the renewed world, when Christ returns, will we literally see wolves and sheep sharing living space? Or, or whether calves and lions really will chill together in a field uh, with children? And if the children are there, will they ever grow up or will they just stay children? And all that's not really the point of this. It's not about speculating. It's the point here, for one, is to show us that this world, this kingdom that Jesus will bring will be free from all conflict and all hostility. Natural enemies will enjoy perfect fellowship. This speaks of, of, it speaks of the shalom, the, the peace and the wholeness that will characterize life under the rule of the Messiah King. It's meant to direct our eyes, our minds back to Eden, to God's garden, where there was peace between all the inhabitants and between them and their God. That's what this king's kingdom will look like. Verse 8, he goes on to say, The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy, holy mountain. Who's the they there? That they could be anyone, anyone, no one, no one shall hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Again, the point is not to speculate about how literal this is. It's to gaze at the picture and say, what does it show us? It shows us that because sin and all of its effects have been eradicated, every threat has been eradicated too. The kingdom of God will be a safe place. When it's ushered in fully and all of sin is pushed out of it, the world as we know it is a dangerous place, isn't it? And other people aren't the only threat. The world itself, nature itself is a threat to us. 
Alfred Lord Tennyson said nature, he described nature as red in tooth and claw. Nature itself is bloody. It kills. There's danger everywhere. But we've got some, uh, we've got new, some new parents here. You know that there's danger all around for your little baby boy or girl. How, how quickly do you jump out of your seat when you see your little baby moving towards something that, that, that's sharp or hot or threatening in any way? The, the prophet here, he invites us to sit back and calmly watch a child play by a cobra's pit. I don't know about you, but this, I, I find reading those words oddly troubling. <laughs> like, I get anxious just thinking about it. Like, can I really try? Years ago, a friend of mine and I went to Thailand. And when we were in Thailand, we, we, went, we were on this island and we saw... Um, we went to go see these cobra trainers, these like cobra charmers. And I was, I was eager to watch this. I thought it was going to be amazing. It was the most anxiety-inducing thing that I've ever publicly watched. It was, inc- it was incredibly uncomfortable. I kept thinking I was going to watch a death, and I didn't want to see a death. But I kept thinking, this guy's not going to make it. Messing around with these king cobras the way he was. God is saying, I know how afraid you are of venomous beasts, and I know how much, how much more nervous you'd be about your child being near one of those venomous predators. He's saying, let, let me give you a glimpse into what my kingdom will look like. You know, after Adam sinned in the garden, God said that he would put hostility between the serpent and the seed of the woman. It's almost like this, this picture in Isaiah 11 is, is laughing at that now and saying, that's a thing of the past. That will be a thing of the past. The hostility will be a thing of the past when the Messiah comes and, and all things are made new. What that will look like literally, again, we don't know. But the picture here provides this impression, a, a vivid sense of the shalom. It's a picture of perfect safety and peace. You know, we... We all spend time and money putting up guards around ourselves, taking precautions. If you don't believe that the world is a dangerous place, then why do you have a security system on your home or on your car? Why do you have so many passcodes, double authentication? We wear masks. We get insurance policies. Some of you child-proof your homes. We teach our kids to protect their bodies. We teach them about good touches and bad touches. Our children's ministry goes through, uh, conducts background checks on every volunteer and conducting abuse awareness training. Why? All because we want a safe environment, and we know that it takes work and energy to create safe environments. And even when we create those safe environments, we still worry that they're not safe enough. We all live on guard, some of us more than others. But we all cultivate vigilance. And, and what I, I don't think we realize just how exhausting that is. Because we're used to it. This is the only world we've ever known. Perhaps we'll be surprised to find out how exhausting it is when in his coming kingdom we finally stop guarding ourselves and rest and experience what it feels like to finally be safe at last. And all of our loved ones, safe at last. 
Joy to the world, one of the lyrics says, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the church is found. No wonder heaven and nature sing in that song. Romans 8 says that the earth groans, it longs for the freedom that it will experience, the freedom from corruption. Isaiah 11 says it's coming, it's coming. It's true that Isaiah 11 harkens back to Eden, but like one of my favorite Bible teachers, Nancy Guthrie, said, this is, this is, quote, even better than Eden. This coming kingdom is even better than Eden because even in the garden there was a threat of the serpent lurking. Even in the garden there was a potential for sin, the, the, the possibility, the danger of failing. But not in this kingdom. When Jesus returns, we'll be free even from the threat of sinning and the threat of temptation. No longer will we have to be sober-minded, watchful, because our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. First Peter 5.8 won't apply in that kingdom anymore. No. According to Isaiah 11, we, we, see, a, we see a lion roar in that kingdom. We can wave and say hi. No threat. It's better. It's better than the fragile safety of the garden. This is the, the whole earth will be made his holy mountain. And verse 9 says, The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Full, covered with intimate knowledge and experience of God. There's no room for sin. There's no room for sadness in that kingdom. There's no room for death or suffering. It's almost like, it's almost like God is singing a song through his prophet and saying, My child, my child, things are going to get easier. Things are going to get brighter. They're going to get better. You don't even know. You can't even imagine what I have in store for you. Next week, we're going to look at who this kingdom is for and who this king is for in verse 10 and down through the end of the chapter. But for now, I just want to leave you with a couple of takeaways. Quick questions in the form of quick questions here. The first one is this, do, do you have hope that the world's problems will ever be healed? Do you hope that the world's problems will ever be healed? Or have you settled into believing that this is what it is and it's what it always will be? If you do hope that the problems of the world will be healed, where do you expect the solutions to come from? According to the prophet Isaiah, real lasting change and healing must come from outside our world. It's not going to come through an election cycle or Supreme Court appointments or new better technology or better schools. It's not going to come through justice reform. All that matters. All of that affects change. All of it is important. I'm just saying that whatever you add to that list, it will fall short of what we desperately long for in our deepest hearts. According to the prophet, real hope for a better, brighter world is in a person. It's in the Son of God filled with the Spirit of God, reigning over the people of God. He entered this world to suffer and break the curse of sin, and he will one day return to finish what he started and make all things new. And that, that means, in part, that even as we pray for and vote for and work toward incremental change in this world, as we should do, the only way to keep from exhaustion and discouragement to keep from being overwhelmed and giving up is to know that it will one day 
not just get a little bit better, but infinitely bright. My last question is this. Do things look desolate in your life? Do things look desolate in your life? If so, you need to know the story has not finished yet. You're somewhere in the middle of the story. It's not over. And I want to encourage you to trust this king. He will, in fact, bring complete renewal to the world when he comes. But even now, even now, he can bring renewal in personal, smaller but real ways in your life. He can bring healing and joy. He delights in doing it. Even where there is desolation and and there's deep discouragement in your life. Look, if you believed in him, you're a child of God and the spirit of God rests in you. Rests in you as he rests in the sun. Rests in you. He's not going anywhere. He's not leaving you. He hasn't and he won't. He is with you in the struggle. Let's keep trusting Jesus. Let's keep asking him for what we long for and let's keep waiting St. Augustine said, what is soon to God seems late to our longing. To God it's soon, but it feels so late to us. But he's not late. So keep waiting for him to work now and for his return. I'll end with these words from the brother of Jesus named James. He wrote these words to discouraged people who wanted things to get better. Let's receive this. And if you're not struggling and longing for things to get better, some of your brothers and sisters and neighbors are. So receive this for their sake. And let's believe it together. Be patient. That means persevere. Don't give up. Therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also, you also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Let's pray. Lord, you see the suffering that's going on in the hearts and the lives of the people who are gathered here today. You see the suffering that's being experienced in their families. And you see the suffering and the pain and the disappointment and the injustice that's being endured by people all over this world. Oh, Lord, but you're asking us to trust you with all of that. You're asking us to wait upon you and to believe that you will make all things right. But you came and you died for us. And you rose again for us. And you've kept every promise. And so we happily believe in you. And Lord, where we're failing to believe, give us faith. To wait. To trust. And to know that you speak to us as our Father and you tell us, my children, things will get easier. They will get brighter. Help us to hang on and believe. In Jesus' name, amen.